You are listening to iFanboys Talksplode, the Breaking Into Comics episode. This is Josh Flanagan from iFanboy.com, and this is Talksplode, our interview podcast. This week is a really special episode. We've got C.B. Sobolski, the talent scout for Marvel, Ron Peraza, VP of Creative Services for DC Comics, and Stephen Christie, Director of Development for Archaea Studios Press. We're going to be talking about how you can break into comics from writers to letterers to artists to anybody who wants to get into comics, and we're going to cover a lot of ground, so let's just get to it. All right, we are here with our Making Comics uh, panel, I'll call it that. Um, first up from, uh, from DC Comics, I have uh, Ron Peraza. How you doing? Good. What's your title uh, at DC? I'm the Vice President of Creative Services. That sounds very important. It's, yeah, very <laughs> it's a long time. Uh, And then uh, I have C.B. Sobolski from Marvel. Hey, how you doing? Very good. And you're, you're, what, what's your title at Marvel? Uh, it seems it changes every week. So that's <laughs> why I don't guess. Yeah, look, this week it's probably Talent Scout. I think that's where I'm at these days. Okay. And uh, uh, Stephen Christie from Archaea, because we got to represent uh, an alternative. <laughs> wow. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're the real. I'm, I'm, the, uh, I'm the director of development for Archaea. Each, each of you guys I've seen spend a lot of time. And the reason that I started doing this is because, you know, I would see you guys on Twitter uh, specifically talking a lot about, you know, how to make comics, how to get into comics, what to do. And I thought that since, I don't know, something around 90, 95% of the people who read comics also think that they can make them. Uh, it might be fun to sit around and talk with you guys who are sort of the experts in this area. I guess, you know, the main thing, the thing that people always start out these kind of things with is they want to know uh, how you got where you are because everybody got to comics a little differently than everybody else. So, uh, Ron, how did you start out in comics and get where you are? Briefly, uh, I started out actually going to school for uh, illustration. I was an illustration uh, major. And uh, at the time, Marvel owned, at the time I graduated, Marvel owned uh, Fleer, which made uh, entertainment cards, Marvel trading cards. And Fleer was based not far from where I was living in uh, Philadelphia. And I ended up uh, showing my portfolio to them to get trading card work um, and ended up getting a job as an assistant art director. And I've been in comics ever since. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, as, as, a, as a creative director, what it is, I know that you're, you're heavily involved in, in uh, Zuda Comics. Uh, I mean, what is it that you, that you do on a day-to-day basis at DC? It's, it's pretty diverse. Um, Zuda came about, uh, we, well, we launched two years ago, so, and I've been with DC for about 10 years now and Marvel before that. So uh, the, the webcomics thing is relatively new, uh, for me anyway. Um, most of what I started to do was uh, custom creative which is kind of a fancy catch-all for everything else. You know, not DC Universe, not Vertigo, not Wildstorm. Uh, it could be posters or custom comics or uh, marketing materials, convention graphics, just kind of a, uh, a, you know, a, a creative generalist, uh, for a better term. And is that, I, mean, I get the sense that that's the kind of stuff that a lot of people uh, actually tend to break in with. If you need people to do like sort of spot illustrations or things like that, is that no, no, that's that's very true. One of the one of the things uh, under that sort of giant umbrella of creative general miscellaneous uh, work is the talent search at conventions uh, that that we we organize. So I I run that panel 
uh, and usually there's there's other people involved in well. It's not it's not just me alone. Like Richard Burning is is often a, a, a large part of it. You know, doing doing introductions and uh, Dan Adio has done it at times and Mark Chiarello. But but yeah, you know, we we actively search out new people and uh, the the uh, custom work is a great way to to break in. In fact, uh, I gave uh, Dustin Wynn his his first work through a, a custom comic years ago. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a great way to to try people out on a, on a very short term limited project and you get to see how they work with deadlines. You get to see how they work with different styles and uh, taking direction and feedback. Cause a lot of times the custom work is, has a third party as a client on it. Uh, and that might be Pepsi or it might be, you know, whomever, right. It doesn't matter. Uh, so you get a lot of feedback and a lot of very specific concerns and it has to look a very sp- specific way. Uh, so it's a good way to see how, how new people can handle that kind of very specific direction and very specific deadlines. CB, you're the, you're the globetrotting, always off to some convention uh, here or there. Uh, how did you, uh, how'd, you were an editor for a while, but how did you get to be the sort of position you're in now? I, uh, the long story short is I was living in Japan, and I've always been interested in comics and manga. And I knew I was going to get into it someday, some way, shape, or form, and just came in through the back door at the end of kind of speaking Japanese. Uh, I left Japan and came back here to work at Central Park Media and launched at CPM Manga, their comic division, and just going to shows and stuff. I got to know a lot of different creators and started doing variant covers. This was before the graphic novel Tanko Boom Boom, when manga was still being produced as 32-page floppies. Mm-hmm. Got a lot of guys to do variant covers for me, Ed McGinnis, Karan Grant, and then I met Joe Q and just kept in touch. And when Marvel wanted to get more into the manga route after the kind of Pokemon boom when Bill Jemis took over, Joe just remembered me and started working with uh, Brian Smith and Tom Brevoort and a lot of guys. And just as a freelancer at first, did some writing and then ended up coming on full-time as an editor. And then decided I was a very bad editor because <laughs> I never respected deadlines and always gave my creators the benefit of the doubt. So they said, oh, you're better taking care of the talent than being the mean guy. So you'll be the good guy and be the talent coordinator for a while. <laughs> and that just led into me just doing a lot of the more, more scouting and going to all the conventions and, you know, taking care of kind of managing the careers of all the, the Marvel talent as, you know, moving them up the ranks from books, different books, different projects and whatnot. Now, when you go to say like some, some sort of, a small convention on the other side of the world. I mean, are you, have you got appointments with tons of people there? Do they just know you're going to be there and search you out? Or It's a, a little bit of both depending on where I'm going. I usually work with local publishers to set up that I'll have a place at the booth and they'll be able to advertise and you know promote the fact that I'm going to be there and doing portfolio reviews. A lot of times it's with Panini, who's Marvel's biggest you know global licensee. They do all their books in most foreign languages. And um, other times it's just I'll go on my own and just try to look through Artist Alley and stuff. And, of course, if I'm going to a convention where I know people, I do set up appointments to just not just look for new talent, which is basically the main part of the job, but also to, you know, talk to the existing talent, talk to our big guns, see what they want to do, where their head is at, what they're coming up with, what they need to, you know, stay happy, I guess. So it's not just a scout. You're also sort of doing management of the whole. Management, yes. Mm. Um, And and Stephen, you're the, 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 I was almost going to say new kid on the block, but I'm taking that back. Uh, you were the you were the a younger company that that a, a lot of readers might not know as well, but they'll certainly know things like uh, Mouse Guard and stuff like that. So, uh, w- tell me tell me about what you're doing. Well, um, basically, it's uh, it's kind of funny. I I started. I, I've been a lifelong comic book fan, but I realized very early on that I was not a a good writer or artist. So I decided kind of the the only route that I could take was to do an editorial route, actually, because I was always, you know, 
ever since I was a kid reading comics, I was always interested, you know, who's the editor on this? What, what is, what is Denny O'Neill doing on all these Batman titles? You know, what, what are, what's Tom Brewer doing on all these titles at Marvel? So, uh, I actually, um, I started at Devil's Due Publishing back in Chicago as an intern when I was, uh, when I was 17 years old and was able to kind of parlay that into internships at, uh, Marvel and DC. And, and while at Marvel, I, I worked under, uh, a little bit, some guy named C.B. Sabalski, uh, who uh, I'm sure doesn't doesn't remember that time. But um, it was uh, it was really cool to kind of be at both of the two major companies uh, after being at Devil's Due and kind of being on that intern level, which is a really interesting level because you you have no responsibility, but at the same time, you really get an understanding of how different companies work, the different personalities of people. At, at the big two and, and just, just how they kind of work as a unit, essentially. And after that, I, uh, I went and pursued uh, film and TV production, which was why I was getting my degree in and moved out to Los Angeles and was uh, working on TV shows like uh, America's Next Top Model and, and The Real World. And uh, I worked for a time actually at Marvel Studios in development on Iron Man and Hulk, which was fun to kind of do, see how the film side of comic book development works as opposed to the the actual comic book production side and uh from there i got hired on to run uh devil's dues los angeles office and then um when uh Kinoichi, our arkea's parent company bought out arkea um i was hired on to run the arkea los angeles office so it's kind of a roundabout <laughs> origin story but um what's really cool is that i uh it's an interesting place being a small publisher out here in L.A. because Arkea is a publisher that's always been very committed to to publishing. You know, when we're not a publisher that you know is out there just to get movie options or, or ancillary deals like like some other small publishers. But um, it's kind of fun to be able to have a foot in the comic book development side, but also you know to be handling the people that that come to us that are interested in developing our books for. Uh, for films or TV shows, so so uh, like Ron, I, I kind of handle all different kinds of of creative things at Arkea, from you know forming our partnerships with uh, uh, Jim Henson Company to um, you know dealing with TV shows or or film adaptations of our stuff that we have going on to just kind of general general company management, you know, kind of trying to figure out okay, who who are we in the marketplace? Who do we want to be? How do we how do we fulfill our goals? What projects are we getting pitched by creators that can kind of fit into our family of titles that we have essentially so yeah that's 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 kind of what we have going on out here so let's uh let's get into the meat i guess of the of you know if you want to want to work in comics uh there's there's three completely different ways of getting into it which is i think one of the lessons that i've learned sort of about comics is that everybody's got a completely different story about how it was they got in i think it was mark wade who said that getting into comics is like breaking out of jail once somebody has found one way to do it that way is closed and you got to find another way out or in in this case i guess so i love the fact that it's called breaking in it's just yeah. it's, <laughs> like it's yeah. illegal to start with let's let, let's start i guess with a with if you're if you're an artist and you're out there and you've been working on your skills uh you know what what's sort of the best route for what's the best first step for them to take to get to know people or get to you know get work out there well it's, it's you know it's it's funny on the creator own side this is a this is totally different for you know for the big two but on the creator own side um you know you you really kind of need to have a a singular voice as an artist and i think in, in general for artists breaking in 
if you're trying to break in on the creator-owned level versus, you know, you really want to draw Spider-Man or, or X-Men or something, um, you really need to have your own voice and you need to be aware that, you know, the smaller companies that you're pitching to are not really going to, if you're not there yet, they're not going to develop you essentially, you know, they're not going to say like, Oh, work on this, work on this, you know, and then come back in a year and, and show me what you've done. Um, they're just probably going to say no, you know, they're just going to say you're, you're not good enough or this, this idea doesn't work. That's kind of partially true. I know that there are specific editors. Uh, when we do the talent search at like San Diego, for example, we kind of have a round table of editors um, who who sign up to meet with specific people and and it really is kind of editor to editor because there there are guys who will absolutely meet with people knowing that they're not ready uh, just to stay in touch with them and give them a little a little bit of advice uh, over the years test them out on a sample page or a sample script um, and and see if it see if it goes anywhere so it's not it's not a complete closed door but generally speaking yeah we're I, I, one of the things I say when, when we give the, the talent search uh, panel is that we're not a school. You know, we're a business. Mm-hmm. What's well, it's one of those things though? Like, if you take a project, I mean, like you're saying, you, you'll meet artists, uh, you know, who will come to, to DC and, and they'll want some work, and, you, and you'll want to keep an eye on them. But at the same time, if you bring like a project to Image Comics or or something like that, like if it's not if it's not ready, it's not ready, and then you just go. It's almost like it feels to me almost like if if you know Marvel or DC were to take an interest in an artist, they'll help shepherd them along a little bit, even if you're not necessarily giving them work right away. I mean, I could speak from the Marvel end of things. It's just uh, I know that over the last three or four years, I would, I'd say, yeah, probably about four years that that we've taken an active interest in kind of more in shepherding a, a lot of people up. And, uh, you know, we've given a lot of people chances that we all, you know, not, might not have otherwise in, in the past. And it's, it's something that I think like to take a lot of pride. And I think, you know, that we all, we all do as a, as a company, just finding guys like Adrian Alfona, who was hired at a con who'd never drawn a single comic book in his life and putting him on runaways and kind of, you know, building his career up from there is, you know, one example that comes to mind that I always use is like, you know, at cons when people say, you ever met, met anyone at a con and just given him a job right away. And he was the one guy like at Philadelphia that year, like, boom, you're hired. What, yeah, was, like, he, you're, what was he doing that made you think that he could do sequential art? Because, you know, it's, it's a language based, you know, and it's of its own. It's just the way that he had a couple sample pages and it's just the way that the the characters moved, even if in his illustration stuff. And he had just, just amazing sketchbooks that I'm just still trying to convince him to publish someday. Mm-hmm. He had the, he had this natural body language, just the way things were broken down and flowed in his sketchbooks, that there was just something there that said, I, I know this kid can do it. And we, we took a big chance on him on a new title and in the end it paid off. And it's just it's one of the, the big success stories, I think, for Marvel that I, I always go back to and use as an example. Of, you know, you just kind of right place, right time and, you know, just ha- having something, an, an identifiable quality, something unique about your art that makes the editor stand up and just go, OK, I can use this. I haven't seen this before. Let's give it a shot. Well, how important is that as compared to, like, say, like the fundamentals, a person who's really got storytelling down? Because I know that, you know, there are a lot of artists in the industry who are, you know, I'd call them almost yeomen. I'm totally not going to name names. But, mm-hmm. you know, guys who will get pages done, the, the, the stuff doesn't necessarily stand out a lot. But, you know, you never the storytelling is always clear. You're never getting lost. You know, there's those guys. I mean, do you recognize that also? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just speaking for Maya not to jump in. But, yeah, you know, there, there is a lot of. A recognition of that and and 
given some of the things that you've probably seen, you know, Ron or Stephen or myself post on Twitter recently, a lot of the advice I've been giving is that people really need to go back and start learning the basics because that's kind of a skill that I sometimes I don't see as much as I used to. I see a lot of flash and a lot of style and a little a lack of storytelling in many places these days. And I just there's something to be said for that skill. And there's a reason that those guys, be they yeomen or, you know, you know, just guys who have been in the industry for years who may not, might not have gained the recognition they deserve because they're a little bit quieter stylistically, mm-hmm. that there's something to be said. Those guys have been working for 15, 20 years for a reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a, a mark of professionalism to just be able to tell a good story and to tell it cleanly without getting lost in uh, the, the, the trappings of kind of a, a style. Mm-hmm. Not to say that style yeah, yeah. isn't important, but mm-hmm. yeah. you know, you're telling a story first. And to to... Josh, to your to your question before about you know how do you recognize somebody that's just doing a single illustration whether they can tell a story? You can tell a story in a single illustration. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's pretty apparent, like CB was saying, like just in in poses, in expressions, in body language. It could be a, a just a single non-paneled uh, uh, image that tells a story. So you can, I think, an experienced editor, an experienced art director can absolutely look at somebody and get a feel for what they can do. Um, it, it's it's uh, funny you say that actually, Ron, because I was actually looking at a, a David Mack sketchbook yesterday, and there's some completely abstract illustration that he did. But from from that one illustration and just the brushwork, you could you could understand what that character was thinking at the time. You could understand what environment they were in. Like like it was it was almost a mini glance at a story just in one image right there and yet it was in that you know totally abstract style that that mac pulls out sometimes i mean that's that's really the mark of of someone that can communicate well because at the end of the day it's all about how you can communicate both what your your characters are feeling and also what whatever script you're trying to interpret yeah. I, I i definitely agree you know storytelling over style 100% of the time practically. I'm guessing there's a lot of things that you guys see when you see artists, uh, you know, samples and things like that, like really common mistakes and things that, I mean, I can just tell you, I've got, some, like, I've, I've worked on some stuff and, and I've shown art to people and, and you know, pros will see mistakes that, that readers and, and amateurs don't ever see, you know, don't ever even think of, you know, such as like, you know, if you're showing somebody running, you have to make sure you show their legs. I had never thought of that until someone pointed it out, and now I can't not see it. Things like what are what are sort of a lot of the, the more common mistakes that that um, that you guys see, or things that people need to work on. I can give you my top four because I have them on a list, and I cut and paste one of them into almost every email from a new artist at some point, if not all four. <laughs> it's stick to the grid. The, the the insane crazy layouts and overlapping panels are good for experienced storytellers, but just I know it's boring, and I know people don't like to do it, but as a as a beginning artist, you should stick to the grid. Two is always include panel borders. Three is pull your camera out. Everybody crops in a lot too tight recently, and I've seen it just from professionals too, that everybody's cropping in just a little, little too tight. And just I know it's it looks like they're cheating sometimes and not drawing in backgrounds. And then my fourth one is don't break panel borders. You know, they everybody loves to break panel borders. And done correctly, if you're Adam Kubert or you're John Romita Jr. and you know how to do it and you know how the panel border is going to break is going to lead the eye, that's one thing. But too many people just do it for dynamic reasons and it takes the eye in a completely different direction. And it just that's, you got to be you got to really know how to use it to be able to to do it effectively. So those are I know right off the top of my head are my top four that I always go to because I always see it in new pencils. Do you think people, uh, artists, uh, try to be too too flashy in their sample pages? Absolutely, and and the grid is just I, I can't I, I do the same thing. Like we can't stress that enough. Like stick to the grid. Um, 
it's exactly like CB said. If you know what it is, it's if you don't understand the rules, then there's no way you'll be able to effectively break the rules. This is kind of interesting, though. I, I was at a con in Italy last year, and and John Barber pointed this out. It might be a trait, particularly with the the European pencilers, and a lot of them are so used to drawing European style in Italy for Bonelli or in France for you know Dargaud or some of these places that when they come to work in American comics or someone like Marvel or DC, they tend to go a little overboard and it's just it's really funny i've been noticing it recently ever since john pointed it out that especially with a lot of the new european pencils that they tend to break a, the rules and go a little bit overboard more so than a lot of the the uh, domestic pencils that i've seen recently so let me ask you this it, it, you know obviously there there are guys who are, who are doing this and if you're trying to show um younger artists or newer artists sort of the the right way to go about things so they're like specific artists to you who you recommend they look at i mean do you tell them to go back and like look at this is a guy who does classic storytelling really well i for for marvel guys speaking of that i do go to the two guys i just named john amita jr and adam kubert you know it's just the, the storytelling is in page layout is is usually flawless i mean no no one can tell a story like those two guys no offense to all the other marvel artists listening but you know <laughs> two two of the masters i was just saying usually uh when i'm looking at a portfolio i'll try and see what that guy is doing and where he's being influenced because a lot of times it's pretty obvious you know if, if they're if they're pulling from you know if they're pulling from a Ramita, if they're pulling from a jim lee or if they're pulling from whatever the, whatever the, the 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 guy that you can see their influence is coming through um and then just try and compare like what they're doing to what to what they're trying to do to what their obvious influences are already doing and, and why it's successful and why it's, it's not successful. I don't know that there's like one or two people that I that I use more than any other. One of the funny things to see is always seeing uh, the good stuff that artists are pulling from their influences and uh, and what they seem to be, be missing as well. You know, like like they'll pull. They'll pull some kind of style or, or flash or, or way that they render something, but but they miss what is actually underneath that that makes that artist uh, good at the end of the day. Yep. And you guys both bring up a point is that you know we're talking about artists pulling from other artists, and it's always funny for me when because I have a standard way that I always open my portfolio reviews, and my second question is usually, oh, who are some of your artistic influences? And they'll name one or two people, and I'll eventually ask, what about this person, this person? Like, oh, you can see that, and it's like, yeah, I can see it. Cause it's always pretty obvious, and it's like it's funny how a lot of artists, and I'm sure you guys will see this too, don't expect you to notice who they're pulling from, but we've done this for so long, it's like it's part of our job to know how to do it. So exactly. Well, let me ask you guys, this is something that's always interested me, is that when you get to the point where you're seeing all these pages and you're seeing all this artwork, how, did, how is it that you, uh, you know, Ron, you said you were an artist, but, but you know, uh, Steve and CB, you guys weren't artists as far as I, I know. How, how, you know. How did you come about all this, this you know, were you just looking at pages for years and years and years and, and, and developing that knowledge of it? It's, it's more of a paying attention. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're in, com- I'm in the comic industry, like, I don't know, over 15 years at this point, reading just about, when you're at Marvel, you get, or at least when I was there, we got every book every week. And at DC, we get every book every week. Um, And I get many of the the non-DC books as well every week. So you're you're almost doing yourself a disservice if you're not keeping up. It's, they make it so, so simple to just stay abreast of what's going on. You have all the materials right there. All you have to do is pay attention. And, and read it and look at it with a critical eye. Don't just get caught up in the, um, oh, Green Lantern did this. Like, yeah, that's, that's interesting from an entertainment standpoint, but 
why is he doing that from a structural standpoint or a storytelling standpoint? And if you have that interest and you pay attention, then, you know, you start to see patterns. Do you find that you can still enjoy reading comics, any of you? <laughs> oh, w- without a doubt. <laughs> it's kind of interesting because uh, a lot of what I do, I, I'm just the same I'm sure goes for, for, for Ron even is that, you know, we hear so many spoilers in the day-to-days of our job about how stories are going to end or what's coming up and the plans for, for the next year. So, I mean, almost everything in the Marvel Universe is pretty much spoiled for me. But when I look at a comic book for work, I look at it with one mindset. But when I'm going to read it and I sit on my couch and I go into that world, everything just kind of vanishes and I'm in that comic book world and spoilers and nothing matters. There's so many times where I'll put I'm like, wow, that was amazing. I didn't expect it had to end like that. And when I close the cover, I'll think back, well, I kind of knew that, but they told it really well and it just came up on me. I didn't even expect it because I was so interested in the story. You know? Yeah, no, that's got to be spe- – I was talking to – when we interviewed Jeff Johns, I said, are you, know, are you annoying to watch TV with? Because I am. <laughs> you know, he said it's like, it's like if you're an architect and you walk into a house, you're going to look up and see how it's built and all the times. And it's hard to shut that off sometimes, I guess. But you can sort of appreciate yeah. the way it's done, even if you know how it's done. Right on TV, actually, one thing I'm curious about, I don't know if it's the same way for you, but I, I found that it's uh, – I still love reading comics, but it's not a it, – it's not quite my hobby anymore, if that makes any sense. Like, oh. like reading comics used to be a hobby, you know growing up but now it's now it's tax deductible you still enjoy it and you still love it but (laughs) it's not quite it doesn't occupy that same kind of passion in a certain way yeah i know what you mean i know what you mean there's there's not the 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 sense of anticipation and the sense of unknown there is with certain things like certain books i read um that we're not involved with from dc standpoint we're not involved with, like fear agent Mm -hmm. uh, which i think is fantastic and i I still get excited when i get a new issue um but but I I know what you mean. It's there is a, there's a part of it now. It's it's a job. Um. Now now if if being an artist wasn't hard enough, uh, I think the only thing harder than that is uh people who want to be writers in comics breaking into that. Um. Now I know I know that CB you 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 are primarily an artist uh scout and admit, right is that yeah. correct? Um. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure you know you've actually you've written some comics. Uh. You've all been around writers. You know how, what's the best what's the best thing a writer can do. Uh, to break into comics, writing is extremely difficult to break in. At, 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 I'm sure Marvel's the same way as DC. It's it's extremely difficult, mostly for legal reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we we can't legally put ourselves in a position where we're reviewing unsolicited material that contains somebody's ideas. Uh, uh, so the, the the best thing to do is get published somewhere. Um, whether I mean, even if that's self-publishing, it, that's fine because then the, the the copyright is clear and we can read it, and there's no legal issues. Um, and I know that's kind of a, like a that's kind of a thing that like most writers don't want to hear because now the the burden's on them to find an artist and to, and to, and to do that that whole route of getting published, whether it's through image or through you know through whatever the, whatever the case may be. Um, but it, it's it's impossible otherwise. So you have a difficult choice or an impossible choice. It seems to me like that's that's the part of the course now. It's almost like the the course you've got to run if you want to write comics is that you have to get out there and make them. And there's no other way around it, really, unless you made a movie. I don't think it's par for the course now. I mean, I remember back in the day when I wanted to break in, when I was, you know, in high school and then in college going to cons and talking to people on how to break in. The Marvel's party line has always been, you know, the best way to get published in Marvel is to get published somewhere else first. The thing that I think has changed is – the with the internet i mean i always say that it's it's never been easier to break into comics it's just never been harder to get 
paid for it. I mean, anyone can go out there and get a website or a blog and create a, create a comic and, and put it online and get published somehow. And the print-on-demand prices are coming down, making self-publishing very easy as well. I mean, it's easier than ever to even finding artists online with digital webbing or pencil jack or the Bendis boards or something. It's very easy to, to, to put connections together to make and produce a comic to be published but again it's it's harder to get paid for it so you're going to have to put a little bit of yourself a little bit of your time and a little bit of your money into that if you do want to get noticed it's funny because with uh, on on the independent side i mean that's that that's what we do i mean it, it is breaking new writers in and allowing archaea to be their home for their creator on work and once they kind of establish themselves there then they can go off to you know Marvel and DC and and do company on stuff, but always having a creator on home. But it's it's so rare, and I got to be totally honest, it's so rare that I actually sit down and read uh, script submissions, just blind script submissions. And and you know, Ron is right that you know you are open legally to to problems. We have a little bit less restrictive. Uh, submission policy just because, you know, we, we don't have company-owned characters that, you know, so, so it, it's a little slightly less restrictive, but I almost always read stuff that comes from a, a writer and an artist, something that has been done where I'm I'm looking at it and I can see the comic in front of me, where the whole comic is, is made, essentially, or it's or it's a web comics team or, or writer or artist that I'm searching out, but it's very, very hard to uh, to kind of break in just being a writer because then what happens when you're a writer and you're coming to an independent company like us you know you come to us and if your idea isn't great i mean it's on us to kind of find an artist for you and find a creative team for you and put that whole thing together and manage it uh which is something we do but are we going to do that for your idea which is you know okay or are we going to do that for you know the guy that has the incredible amazing idea that we've never you know, that we never heard before. And also, you know, with independent companies, we don't publish as much as Marvel or DC do. You know, you have companies like IDW that publish, you know, 20 to 25 books a month, you know, booms at 10 to 15. Uh, you know, smaller companies are, are at around five comics a month. So it's it's much, much harder to break in on that side. But um, really, I think the the best thing in my mind to do if, if you're just a writer is to think about your brand, think about what brand you're creating. I mean, Kirkman created his brand with Funkotron uh, and then, you know, parlaying that into Invincible and Walking Dead. He created a brand for himself. He was Kirkman before, you know, he went off and he did the stuff that he did at Marvel. Mm -hmm. And I know that's, you know, that's a really hard example and that's a really hard thing to emulate, but but what is your brand as a writer? What is your brand as a writer artist team? What, what are you guys pushing? You know, what does your work stand for? Essentially, that's the important thing to think about. That's the important thing to develop, as opposed to just mailing your scripts into the different companies. Because I, I guarantee it's unless you know someone there, it's going to be really, really hard to get someone to read it. But but that's the other thing too is that obviously the more editors you know, the more you know, the, the more executives you know at these different companies, the easier it is to get, you know, to at least get them to pay attention to it. So, well, that I mean, and that that's a really good point because if I've learned nothing else about about you know working in comics, it's it's like any other industry, especially entertainment industries, is that it really is you know who you know, and you, and you have to get people to like you, and you have to get people you know to want to look at your stuff and help you out for the most part, unless. You know, you're some sort of mad genius whose stuff is so good that it cannot be ignored. Um, I mean, so but even that guy has trouble getting work if he's an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> 
but you all know at least one of them. That guy, you'll work with that guy a few times and then you'll realize it's not worth the effort and you'll find somebody else that's just as good. Okay, well, yeah. so for the rest of us who aren't the mad genius, uh, you know, what's the best way? I mean, I think now you know, there's conventions, but, uh, you know, and, and social networking have really been huge, I think, for, uh, you know, bringing the community together. But what have you guys found works best? You know, how are people... Uh, approaching you and, and, and sort of getting to know you and stuff. Wow. Uh, actually, I think, I think sites like Twitter, I mean, Twitter is great because it's so immediate and, and so personal and social media in general is, is that way. Um, but, but Twitter makes it real easy to review someone's portfolio. Um, I think I've had, uh, better results just talking with people and, and following links from, from Twitter than, from necessarily sitting down at a small show and having a line of people that want to show their portfolio. Mm-hmm. So that and, and Artist Alley. Um, I, I think I have better, better results finding creative people when I go out looking for them rather than when I'm sitting down and they're coming looking for me. So theoretically, if you're like walking around a con and you go into the Artist Alley like, you know, full of all those hopeful eyes, I mean, do you, are you stopping at every table or are you, you know, checking through everything and... Uh, I do. I, I, I usually when I go to a show, I'll I'll make a point to spend at least uh, one day, not the full day, depending on the size of the of artist alley, but um, at least one day walking up and down every to every booth uh, to every you know whatever table at artist alley, and just taking a look at what they're doing, what they're doing, even if it's a guy we're already working with, because sometimes you know you get caught up in the day to day routine of of what's going on. And they'll have their sketchbook out or they'll have their portfolio out and you'll see something that isn't a part of the business you're already doing with them and it may spark an idea or it may show what they can do given an opportunity that they, that they don't currently have. Um, so I think that's, that's you know, an important thing for any editor or art director to do, just, you know, just constantly keep up with what, what new guys are doing but also what the existing guys are doing. I couldn't have said it better myself. Now, Stephen, I'm guessing you don't get to do a lot of that at shows because you have a much smaller crew going on and probably stuff coming at you more than you're doing outreach, or are you? I, I actually definitely cruise Artist Alley, and it's fun because it's always an interesting, you know, it's exactly like CB said, it's an interesting temperature taker to see what what kind of everyone in, in general is working on at the time or, or thinking about. And uh, I definitely, you know, even though our shows are busy, I, I really do try to spend time there because that's, you know, that that's an important place to, you know, just, just make relationships, you know, build, build relationships and, and just as much for us as a company as it is for the creators that we're talking to, to, uh, uh, to build those relationships with them. It, it's funny, CB, I saw you were talking about, uh, DeviantArt today on Twitter. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. DeviantArt is actually a place that, uh, that I'll, I'll, I've had some luck with in terms of finding, uh, not so much finding properties, but finding, you know, people that, that could work on, on comic books, you know, either colorists or, or not, not so many pencilers, mostly colorists and, and painters, but it's just about getting your work out there. And if it's in an artist's alley, if, it, if it's on deviant art, you know, it, it's important to, uh, to kind of get it out there. And if, you know, if, if, if it's a smaller company where, you know, the person doesn't have time to wander around artist alley, it's always good for, for artists just to kind of wander wander to all the booths of the different bubble trips. And if someone doesn't have time to look at your portfolio, I mean, you know, just drop it off. I mean, usually it's funny during San Diego, I usually don't have time to do portfolio reviews, but I'll say, you know, 
drop your portfolio off, you know, dr- drop a copy off or something. And we will always look at that when we get back to the office after, uh, after the convention stuff winds down. Yeah, and I think another thing I just wanted to, to, to mention is as much as it's called Artist Alley, you know, it's, it, it also would be beneficial for writers sometimes to go with their artists to the cons and even get a, on their own if it's a small show or something that, you know, is a couple hundred bucks to get a table that they professional and just set up space because a lot of times, uh, you know, that's how we, we do find some new writers is you just find a you, you find an artist you like who's attached with a writer and you, you pick up the book. And you pick it up for the art, but you end up liking the writing. And I know a couple of people have been hired that way. Mm-hmm. And just but the more, other thing more, I was, the art sucks, but you're like, the writing, this writing is yep. amazing. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's worth noting too. I mean, uh, Steven's mentioned it and CB's now mentioned it too. That kind of artist writing, artist writer uh, team up, is a, that's exactly the model that we use for Zuda as well uh, for, for new ideas. and. And we have uh, had had some success going. Yeah, this guy's writing is pretty good. He doesn't have to work with this artist. The artist is good too, but it would be interesting if we had this pairing or that pairing. So, um, if you're a writer, that's a that's a fantastic um, tactic to use uh, to get your work out there. Is is you know find an artist and, and make a team out of yourself. Well, uh, talk to me about Zuda a little bit because I think this is it's turning into a, sort of a new. I guess a new way to get your work out there and, and done too. Um, how does Zuda work for a, a new creator? I guess. Yeah. Well, the way it works is we take submissions uh, through the site, but uh, it's got to be complete, right? It's a it's a it's a web form, so you have to fill in every piece of the form in order to submit it. Which means you have to have a full story. You've got to have pages that are done to spec, and and uh, uh, you know it's it's a it's a limited number of pages. It's just like eight. Each Zuda page is actually about the equivalent of a half a page if it were printed, but um, so because they're horizontal for the screen, so it's it's eight screens of artwork, um, but it's got to be good. It's got to be complete. So anybody that has either the ability to write and draw themselves or or any creative team can send us anything uh, through the site. Now that submission goes through, and and you guys put up a lot of comic books, or you know, a lot of comic pages and things like that. I'm guessing. I'm wondering how how you know do you put up a lot of stuff to begin with, and then it gets whittled down. Well, I mean, this is a voting process. Not to, not to completely co-op this and turn it into a Zuda conversation, but but just to run through it real quick. So all those submissions come in, and then uh, Kwanzaa Johnson, who's our editor, and Nika, who's our assistant editor, and I go through the submissions. We gather them up into into groups of ten, and then once a month we post ten new comics. Uh, and then we, we, we throw that out to the community uh, to read them, have conversations about them. They can rate them. They can vote on them. And, and through all those user interactions, uh, one will rise to the, to the top and be you know, kind of first place, second place, third place, et cetera. The guy that's in first place at the end of the month, we give that guy contracts to produce that webcomic as an ongoing comic on the site. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, we've been live for about two years with that site, and we've got about – I think uh, you know, thirty ongoing series, uh, you know, in, in that time. And then some of those even go on to get published, you know, book form also. Yeah, once once you have enough, uh, once you have enough material, then we can uh, we can collect it up and we can we can put it out as a as a, a print volume. And we've done that with uh, with Bayou and with High Moon and uh, with Night Owls is coming up next. One of the things that I've heard a lot of discussion about is, uh, you know, if you're 
going to do a story, say that you're, you're not uh, doing Zuda and, and you want to put it on your website, do you guys recommend putting up like like just putting your work up there for free uh, rather than trying to get it self-published sometimes? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, we, we have a book called Gunner Craig Court that uh, that we're publishing. We actually found and it, it's a it was a free webcomic online. And the funny thing that we noticed is that with uh, and we've done this with Tumor too, which we, we gave out for free on the uh, on Amazon Kindle. Um, the more you give out your work for free, for some reason, the more people will want to pick up the printed version of it. Um, the Gunner Craig Court sales numbers uh, have been ridiculous. It's been out for about six months now, and uh, we're almost at 8,000 copies of a $27 hardcover. Mm-hmm. So for a, an independent webcomic from a creator that nobody had heard of before, um, that's pretty amazing. And the reason why is because he he put you know it's like we've been saying he put the time in and he put the money in he got his site he did this comic he, he did literally about 300 pages and uh you know he, he built up this subscriber base and the subscriber base was overjoyed when they found out oh my god i can get uh i can get a printed volume of this mm-hmm. and uh, i think that's really the direction that you're going to see a lot of independent publishers going is either and and Zuda's kind of Zuda's a part of it. You know, we we actually get submissions from from people that have you know have been on Zuda. You know, and, or people that are 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 into it. I mean, it's the web comics revolution is you know people talk about it, but it's here. People are posting their stuff online, and I think that really the goal for a lot of independent publishers is becoming, you know, what can we find that has that fan base already there that we can translate into a printed fan base. Um, what can we do to give our comics away for free online and see how that affects the um, the print sales of the print book when, when we take it to press? So I think as you see more publishers potentially moving away from the direct market, you're going to see more of them looking at what you know what is kind of the Zuda model, where you serialize it online uh, for free and let people discuss it and rate it and get excited about it, and then follow it up with uh, with a print version. I mean, like I read Bayou on online as it was coming out, and I, I read the whole thing, and I still went out and bought, you know, the trade paperback mm-hmm. when it came out. So, because it seems like the conventional wisdom would be to not, you know, put your whole thing up for put your whole story up for free or something like that. But it it feels to me like it's getting disproven, basically. Yeah, we've seen no sign that having the comics available on the site has negatively impacted the sales and and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, exactly as Stephen said that if you build an audience that's interested in what you're doing they'll support you hmm. comics is a collectible collectible medium you know it's just that's what I always say people always say oh, they've been tolling the death of print comics forever and I was like comics will print comics will never die because there's a there's a culture built up around it and part of that mentality is a collector's mentality and not so much I'm not talking about the value and bagging and boarding flabbing your books as much anymore I'm talking more the, the shelf porn aspect where you want to have a hard copy of it yeah it's great reading it online but you just want something you could take off yourself and sit down on your couch and enjoy one afternoon even if you've read it a couple times online or a couple times in in a collection already and we're never going to to lose that mentality I don't think and that's why the industry will always you know thrive hopefully <laughs> we hope uh one piece of advice that I've, I've heard you all mention at one time or another uh and you have now is that you know should be obvious but comic books are a business uh if you want to make comics for a living that's your that's your job that's your thing you have to take very seriously um 
I guess if you, I was just curious if you guys wanted to speak to that at all and the kind of things that you, that, you know, that you advise people to do. And when, when you, I always tell people, when you go for a portfolio review, you know, you don't have to wear a suit and a tie. We, we don't, none of us wear that kind of the tire to the office where, you know, we're jeans and t-shirt kind of publishers, even though we are a business, but you have to look at your, your portfolio review as a job interview. Yes, comics is fun, but we do it to make money in the end. You know, as much as we like making the comics, we all have bottom lines we have to meet. We all have budgets that we have to live up to. And when you're coming for a portfolio review, you are applying for a job. You're coming to me or to Ron or to Steven, and you're saying, hire me. Because just, just like you would if you were going to McDonald's or to, you know, any any big corporation, you're, that's, that's your job interview. It's just in a different format. So really act professionally and treat it accordingly. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a very simple thing. Just be polite and be professional, you know, and just just remember who you're speaking with. And you're not talking to Spider Man. You're not talking to Superman. You're not talking to to Stan Lee. You know, you're you're talking to an editor who has the potential to change your life with just if as long as you can impress him with your work. And a lot of it is attitude. I get a vibe off certain artists when I'm doing portfolio reviews as well that oh this person will work out or this person won't because it's just again that's the job interview aspect that where I look at it from. So just I always advise people when you're doing that just remember you are going for a job interview when you're going for portfolio view yes it's comics but yes it's still a career yeah i've always thought a general rule of thumb is is, is just don't be creepy yeah <laughs> there's just a, a little <laughs> just a little too much creepy and i would i imagine that also extends to you know since so much of this networking is done online now that that sort of has to extend to you know the way you are on twitter or you are on facebook or whatever i mean it's you're, it's just all you being presented like that so the more that you have like a you know, like a, a weird avatar and and screen name, you know, and, and what it is that you're you're sort of presenting as yourself publicly. I, I feel like that stuff all has to count in the same way, too. Definitely. That's that's like uh, what Stephen was mentioning before about you are essentially your brand. You are a company and you have to act. You have to act like that. You have to act like you know what you're doing. You're not just, uh, you know, it's not all just fun and games and, and hanging out late nights and drinking and and and, you know, and, and having that thing, it, you have to be able to actually do the work and hit your deadlines and and tell a good story and and know your craft, whatever your craft is, if it's penciling or inking or lettering or whatever it is. You have to know it inside and out and respect it as a job in addition to all the fun that can come from it because it's a fun job. Branding is really – on the independent side, that's really what it is because you need to know – one of the important things too is that you also need to know who you're pitching for. Um, you're going to pitch to CB and Ron in a different way that you're going to pitch to Arkea or another independent company. Mm-hmm. You know, as as much as uh, you might like, you know, the, the the wonderful superhero opus you've written, but that's probably not going to get published at you know a company that does books about mice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it's that's one of the that's just more of a personal thing that that I get is just understand who you're pitching to and understand what you're selling because. You know, you're right. You're selling yourself at the end of the day. Not only do you have to be your own brand, but you have to be your own agent. And when you're speaking to an independent comic book publisher that doesn't have characters that have, you know, a huge lineage behind them or, or movies or action figures or video games, you need to be pitching a brand and you need to be pitching it not just in a way that you're telling a story, but you need to be telling the person that you're pitching to this is how my book is going to work for you. And this is going to how is how it's going to make you money. And this is how it's going to have a life potentially beyond just being a great comic. But at the same time, while saying that 
you don't want to be pitching a movie pitch that you think might just happen to work great as a comic mm-hmm. because you're pitching to a comic book publisher at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, I, I think even the publishers that do more of the, you know, comics that are kind of Hollywood focused, every publisher will probably tell you that first and foremost, they, they want to make good comics. And that's definitely true at Arcade. We, we, we want to make good comics and we don't want to hear, you know, your failed TV pilot. Yeah. So. And j- just to follow up on that from the, the big two end, if you don't mind, and I, I think, Ron, the same might be said for some of the stuff that you do is, you know, when you, when you know who you're pitching to is advice I give a lot of the writers who come to, to Marvel or who want to pitch DC because you're going to pitch – I can't listen to, to pitches from writers, but I always say, well, what do you want to pitch? I'll pitch anything that Marvel DC wants me to write, you know, and that's not the right answer. You should have a specific story in mind or specific characters you want to work with, you know. There should be some things that you want to pitch and know who to pitch to. You're going to pitch Axel Alonso a different story than you're going to pitch Mark Panisha. You're going to pitch Eddie Berganza a different story than you're going to pitch Will Dennis. And you should know who you're pitching to, especially for writers, so you come off as knowledgeable and educated and, again, appearing professional because the editors have different tastes and you should know ahead of time going in, do a little bit of research before you go in blindly and just say, oh, I'll write anything. Well, who, what character do you want me to write? It's like, no, we want to hear what you want to write because that's how we're going to get the best story out of you. And not only that, not what you just not just what you want to write, but what you can write because, yep. you know, j- just just as CB was saying, you know, the different editors have different strengths and, and, and different styles of stories that they tell. You're better off pitching if you have a specific way that you write, pitch to someone that tells that kind of story, the pitch to an editor that's working in that in that whatever that is, if it's crime fiction or if it's superhero fiction, like, you know, don't don't just come into it and say, well, I'll write anything because you, you may not be able to tell a good superhero story, but you can tell a great mystery. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, it's it's one of those things that actually always scared me. Like, I feel, I feel like if, if a Marvel editor came to me and said, well, what would you want to do? I'd be like, there's too many things. But I, I mean, it, it feels <laughs> like that's one of those things that you'd have to work out ahead of time or, you know, you have to sort of have some, some ideas. So even if you don't think you're going to get that call tomorrow, you kind of always want to have that pitch ready in your head. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And one of the things I always tell writers too, you know, we, we've been talking, I just mentioned maybe get a table at Artist Alley or something like that. But for an artist, when you're going to a portfolio review, it's very easy to show your portfolio and get a review because it's, it's a lot easier for us to just look at an artist and form an opinion and, and judge it on the spot. But writers should never go into cons thinking that they're going to be able to pitch a story in person because normally they can't for legal reasons because there's paperwork involved or we just don't accept pitches in person. And don't think you're going to really go in to drop off a script or a screenplay or some kind of pitch there because a lot of times we can't accept it or if we do, it's just a lot of the editors just there's not a lot of room in the suitcase, you know, and it's just the the script will be something that might just get thrown out. I always tell writers when they go to cons how they should be looking to treat it as a job interview is just go to get business cards, spread yourself around, you know, give your business cards, meet some people, you know, just just use it as a networking opportunity. If the editor asks, oh, hey, do you have any comics you've done? That's where the self-published comics or the comics get handed over because they can read it on the spot even when they're at the con on the john. Who knows, you know? And the comics are more likely to go back to the office than an actual screenplay is. Well, that's that's uh, brings up a question. I gotta chime in too, as, as a former intern, actually. That another great way, if if uh, you know, if you're a, a writer and you really want to go use to intern, because then you do you do get to tour the offices of the of the different editors that you're working with, and you do get to learn why Eddie Berganza, it, you know, will read different stuff than Will Dennis will and, and what you want to pitch to them. And, and the biggest thing is when you're, 
when you're interning, you never obviously want to be pitching them stuff because then you'll just be that annoying intern. <laughs> yeah, you get shown the door. His, uh, <laughs> right, you've burned. Yeah, it. that's pitching his deathlock idea. Um, but what you want to do is you want a relationship and a, and a friendship, and you want to be able to to you know when the day comes that you feel like you're ready to pitch when you when you feel like you you have enough knowledge and, and you know what you want to do you can email that editor and that editor likes you enough that he's like yeah you know what I, I i will check out your stuff you know or you can send them a link like hey you know one of the things i i did with uh you know in college after i interned just to keep in touch with people is i'd just send them links like hey this is what i'm working on even if it wasn't a comic if it was a short film or or something like that hey this is what i'm working on and that that can really go a long way. And in a way, interning is kind of the best way to get get behind the scenes and get behind the curtain and start to really understand the business. Because the more that you understand about the business, the more that you can speak to that side of of the creative process. Mm-hmm. Be in a language that, you know, the other can understand and really build those relationships. If so. I could add one thing, just building off of that real quick. The other thing I recommend is, don't overlook junior editors, and I, I can't speak for DC on this end, but I can speak for Marvels because everybody who is a writer usually wants to pitch Joe Quesada, Axel Alonso, or Tom Brevoort, you know, the three big editors at Marvel who usually are the busiest and don't have time for that. But pitching the junior editors, just because they're junior doesn't mean they have their own projects. At Marvel, a lot of the junior editors are allowed to build and pitch their own projects from short stories to single issues, and that's where a lot of the opportunities comes from. And the other benefit is that the junior editors want to hire new writers. They want to form newer relationships so they can build and you can grow with them over their career. You know, everybody wants to hire the next Bendis. Everybody wants to hire the next Brubaker or, you know, Greg Rucka or Jeff Johns. So a lot of the junior editors are out there looking for guys who they're going to be able to bring in. And they're a lot more open to reading pitches and to, you know, accepting comics and spending more time working with younger and newer writers than some of the, uh, the uh, senior editors are who are extremely busy and just don't have a lot of time for it. So don't overlook someone just because they're an assistant editor or associate editor. They have just as much opportunity for writers to, to break them in as, as some of the senior editors do. Well, let me, let me CB, talk... do you find in Marvel, do you, do you find in Marvel, CB, that more junior editors will bring projects in sometimes than the senior editors will? Uh, it all depends. It, it's, 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 a, it's a mixed bag. It depends on the week. But recently, you know, as, as the, there's been a lot – the junior editors that are up there now have been there for a, a very good amount of time, and there's a lot of trust established. So we see a lot more pitches coming in from a lot of the junior editors and a lot of really good quality stuff that's being developed because, you know, just the mentoring system that Marvel has has taught them how to put out the good books. And they're just out there bringing in a lot of new voices that might not have gotten a chance a couple of years ago just because of the position that these juniors have attained at this point. Well, now that we're talking about pitches, uh, I mean, what are uh, now, Stephen? You're you're going to be taking different kinds of pitches than than you know anyone at Marvel or DC was. So, what is it you recommend that that somebody comes to you with in a pitch? What is it? What is it? I mean, you'll have submission guidelines up, but uh, other than that, what sort of you know light can you illuminate on it? Well, it's it's really uh, it's it's weird to keep going back to the brand thing, but I mean, when David Peterson pitched Mouse Guard, Mouse Guard is is like the weird. Um, example. I mean, I, I would kind of cite Bayou as being somewhat similar, where you, you read a book, and from the very beginning, you know, even from the first pitch, the world is fully there, the characters are there, the story is there, the storytelling is there, um, and the artist there, and and that's that's kind of like the holy grail uh, that we look for. We we really, you know, some once in a while I'll, I'll read a script, uh, I'll. I'll look at a lot of artists that, that just have their portfolios, but 
really kind of the best thing that we love to look at is something that's fully finished. Like here's a great example. Um, Jim McCann, who wrote New Avengers of the Union, is over at Marvel. Uh, I used to work for him uh, when I was an intern at San Diego this year. He came to us with this pitch called Return of the Dapperman, which is this completely out of left field uh, fairy tale. I, it's kind of like Dark City for children, if that if that makes any sense, kind of. But um, he came with, it, and it was an idea where I think that if he had just pitched it to us verbally or had just given us a script or if we'd just seen art alone, it would have been much harder. But the fact that he came with completed pages of art and character designs and he was really able to elaborate on it, I mean, that that was, really went along with us. And we greenlit it there on the spot in San Diego. Um, so, I mean, it, it's really for, I think, on the independent publishing side and not just with Arkea, it's really coming with the full package. It's really showing either the editor or the executive or the publisher, whoever you're pitching to, this is the book that you're going to be publishing from me, and this is how I'm going to create it, and, and this is the way it's going to look, this is the way it's going to feel. And that requires, I think, putting in, you know, it, it's a lot of work. It, it's putting in a lot of work. And if, you know, if you're not ready yet, you've put in a lot of work on something that, that might not go anywhere. But that's the thing that for me will, will kind of guarantee a little bit more than I'm going to read your thing is if you can come at me with a 10 page fully done comic book, I can just sit down and read. Cause then, then I can take in the art. I can take in the story. I can make an assessment of everything about how the comic is presented and decide if it's something that we want to publish or not. Now, Ron, when you guys are looking at, at pitches for Zuda, uh, what is it you look for? Uh, well, there's, that's a really loaded question. I'm sorry. <laughs> there, well, it's interesting because there's two ways that you can actually get a comic on site. The, 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 I think the way that people most think about is, is the competition because that's obviously the most public way of, of, uh, of getting a comic on the site. But, you know, we also have a, a slightly more traditional just editorial selected um, – editorial selected books as well like Bayou. Stephen mentioned Bayou and it is exactly that uh, that feeling of when you – when you see the pitch and it's all there, it's complete. You're working in a very unique style. It's fully realized. The world is fully there. The characters are fully there. Um, and it, it, I mean, it's, it's great that you referenced by because that is not to just try and explain that verbally. It, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It's like, well, it's kind of like yeah. wonderland, but in, you know, in depression era, Mississippi mixed with African mythology. And, you know, it, it, you don't, you don't quite get it. You lose something in just trying to say it. You have to kind of see the whole thing of it and, and kind of lose yourself in it. And I think that's what we look for when pitches come in, you know, when we want to pull something out of the competition and say, this is just something we want to get behind. We should, we should start put, putting this out right away is, uh, the stuff that's, very clearly driven from creative passion, not from this is what I think you want to see, mm -hmm. but this is what I want to make. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, like, so how much of a story do you, do you want to know? Do you, do you want to know that somebody has everything done, you know, like through like say like six issues or a graphic novel worth or something like that? Or, or, uh, I mean, I know people want to know to have an ending, but you get you only get a few pages a lot of times, or you don't want to produce like a whole book. You can only produce a pitches, you know, like the first five or ten pages or something like that. 
what's important to have those? Because it feels to me it's like sometimes it's having a pitch that really grabs somebody is a little different than building a story and having the pages that, that do that, like in, in a straight-up book, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that does make sense. But I think it's important to know, too, that um, the, that the creative process is kind of fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's It can't possibly be so rigid. Your story, if you're creating a pitch, can't possibly so, be so rigid that there's no room for – uh, for editorial input, there's no room for anyone's opinion. Um, you know, if if you're locked into this thing, then you know, then maybe your best bet is to self-publish it because then you're not worried about collaborating with anybody. But uh, you know, but I think I think there has to be room for flexibility. There has to be room for for um, for changes to come along the way because you might. As you're creating a story, you might you might draw this page and and realize, oh wait, this guy looks this way. Um, I can use that later on in the story. I'm going to change this piece, or you know, this isn't working out like I thought it was. It kind of you know, change, the story evolves as it goes. So you have to be open enough to to respond to that. Cool. Uh, moving moving on a little bit uh, now. You know, there are writers and artists, obviously, but there's all other people working. Uh, you know, as as inkers and letters and and colors. Uh, how, how is it, I've heard that it's, you know, not the best time for all those people right now. Um, what do you think uh, about like CB? Are you looking for those guys too? I mean, speaking honestly, it's, I have a lot of inkers that I'm looking for work for currently. And we're talking established guys who have been in the industry for years who are just, uh, you know, hurting for work. And it's, it's, it's sad to see. And I don't think it's a lot of people attribute it to the rise of digital coloring. And it really just has nothing to, to do with that. I think the, the fact of the matter is, is, is almost, you know, three, maybe fourfold in the fact is that, you know, inkers can do more than one book a month. So there's a less a need of them. There's a lot more pencilers. We need fewer inkers actually you know because you know one inker can handle maybe two sometimes three books a month depending and then you know the other uh fact of the matter is that a lot of pencilers are requesting inkers that they're working with so a lot of some of the uh some guys are getting getting overlooked for younger and newer uh inkers who pencilers are meeting at conventions and starting to work with or younger guys that they're bringing up and teaching them to ink over their style and so it just right now I think it's just a, a tough time for, for inkers in general, unfortunately, just because of, of the some of the changes that we've seen happen in the, 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 the penciling world over the last, you know, three to four years. And um, that's I'm just speaking from the, the Marvel end of things on that. Okay. We see the same thing too, and, and not only does it, you know, that kind of uh, workload creating your your opportunity, you know, uh, inkers can ink more books than pencilers can pencils, and colorists can color more book than inkers can ink, and, mm-hmm. and and letterists can letter more books than colorists can color, so that the available jobs get more or fewer and fewer as you as you get along. So if you were, I mean, if you if you wanted to be, how do you? I mean, how would you even go about breaking in in this letter at this point? I guess you would just try to get on indie books and do stuff and. Talk to Chris Eliopoulos. <laughs> but then that's a conversation you can't get out of. Yeah. No, no you know, it, it's we've we've seen, you know, I, I can't, you know, I'll speak for Marvel, but you know, Marvel has has contracts with certain letterers where, you know, they are contractually obligated to do a 
certain number of books every month, Chris Eliopoulos being one of them. I don't think I'm breaking any confidentiality with this. And, you know, Chris has a stable of guys underneath him who he works with. You look at the Marvel books, you see lettered by VCs Joe Caramagna, lettered by VCs Corey Pettit, VC being virtual calligraphy, which is Chris's company. So Chris is a great guy for people to talk to about how to break into lettering, about just learning some of the stylistic tricks in lettering. And then, you know, possibly there's the opportunity that, you know, Chris will be hiring people. And I, I can't speak for Richard Starkings or for, for, for Blambot or any of those guys. I know some of them do use assistants and have growing studios. But some of the best routes to go in for letterers and also for colorists, I would say, too, like is talk to some of the established pros out there and see what they need. And maybe they do need help. It's a good way to pick up work and make a name for yourself, at least get your name in some of the the, 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 the bigger books, the more mainstream stuff, get some published credit. And, you know, for colorists, guys like, you know, Chris Sotomayor is one guy that comes to mind who – has been very good about training people. He's going to be starting up some coloring classes online. And, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of good ways to get in with that is, is through an established pro, you know, prove yourself, learn a little, make the connections, and then build from there. Mm-hmm. The, the best way for a colorist to break in, too, with, uh, with established colorists is, is just doing flatting for them. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, one of the first professional jobs in comics I had was actually actually flatting for uh, for Blonde, the colorist, and uh, it, it's just a great way to you know to kind of start with the basic stuff because you're not you're literally starting at the basics. You're not doing any rendering or stuff. You're you're just kind of developing color theory. And if you're with a good colorist, you know, hopefully that colorist will will mentor you and kind of build you up to the point where you can you can go off on your own you know much much in the same way like you guys were saying about the you know the different lettering studios like with uh you know with Comicraft. i mean i know rich still has a few people working under him but i remember you know a, a few years ago when there was like five or six people work working at a Comicraft, and you would always see uh you know see their different names and uh in the different books. So it's great to kind of, it's almost like an, an art internship in the sense where you get to kind of work under those people and, uh, and learn from them. But if you want to do it right, definitely learn from the best because lettering is, is something that I'm so anal about on, on our books. And, and we, we've had a few books that, uh, I won't name with, with crappy lettering, but that in itself is, there's such an art to good lettering and it's so hard to kind of verbalize that and figure out, how to explain what good lettering is versus bad lettering in certain, or just what great lettering is versus good lettering. Um, so, you know, it, it's really important, I think, to learn from the guys like, like Chris or, or Rich or... Uh, or read Todd uh, Klein's blog. <laughs> it's an amazing, yeah, amazing Klein, blog. I mean, yeah, yeah or, or the Art Monkeys guys or, or, or Nate you know, at Blambot. So learn from the best. Yeah, and, and you, know, you can... Half of those people are on Twitter. You know, or or have Facebook pages and stuff like that, so they're rel- relatively easy to get to, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Oh, let me and, go ahead. No, I was just going to say one one of the things that that Stephen touched on right there was color theory, and you know, knowledge of Photoshop does not a good colorist make. So, you know, just because you know the ins and outs of of coloring, you know, and you can you know do all kinds of flashy stuff on Photoshop, not knowing the basics is the surest way to get. Un, not get any kind of work here, and I always tell people: as much as you think you know the computer, you gotta you gotta start with the basics, and you know, either take some just quick notes from some some uh, some established colors. Put your ego aside, even if you think you're good. You know, stop and listen for a while, and that goes for any discipline that we've been talking about here today. But you know, colorists, especially especially younger colorists, I've I've noticed seem to think that they you know make it look cool and just they can put the sheen over everything, and no one's gonna notice. But a, a knowledge of 
not having a knowledge of color theory is the thing that stands out the most clear out of for most disciplines of things I see. It just you can see it on page one, panel one, just looking at at, the, at bad coloring. Do you think it's a it's a, a real good time to try to break into comics or, or a bad time or you know the industry is in a lot of flux. There's a lot of things that are changing around. Um, what do, what do you guys think? Uh, start with CB. I think, like I said before, I think there's no better time to break into comics. I think it's it's easier together to get into comics in some way, shape, or form. And I just, you know, speaking from the the Marvel end of things, I know we have a lot more opportunities opening up for artists just with the, the artist recruitment stuff that I do and a lot of the individual editors do themselves. And having – we have inventory stories ready, you know, eight-page, 11-page scripts to give to artists on the spot if we find people we like. And the same for writers. All you have to do is impress one of the editors. And we are developing a lot of these short stories where we're looking for the the next big voices, the guys who are coming up. We're always on the hunt. And there are some more hoops to have to jump through for writers, but the opportunity is there as long as you can go out and make a name for yourself and prove that you have the ability and the professionalism and the kind of motivation it takes, the talent to work as a Marvel writer. How how important uh, is it? I mean, when you start seeing somebody sort of, you know, at one con and then another and then you know, year after year, and they're still working at it. Like, you know, there's got to be there's such a stick Like, you can keep working at this for, you know, 10 years before you actually get any paid work or anything like that. I mean, you get to know those people and see them over and over again. Does that make an impact? Uh, it does. <laughs> impact is sometimes very positive because they're sticking at it, and sometimes it's like, you know, gotta find a new job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I had this question. You know, when I when I first became the talent manager at, at Marvel, I had a a, a a lunch with Joe Q one time, and he was like, "The hardest part is you know realizing that you are kind of the the person who's got." a lot of people's dreams in your hands and you don't, you never want to tell people no matter how long that, you know, you've seen them and how long they've been going, that they're bad. You can't, you know, you got to keep constantly supporting them and supporting them. And it's, is there ever a time, there have been a few times where I just want to say, Hey man, maybe you should just think about doing something else, you know, but you can, you, you can never tell someone that, you know, is that Ron? Uh, I was just saying, sometimes you just want to tell people there's nothing wrong with being a fan. Yep. No, you don't have to. Just because you love comics doesn't mean you need to be a creator. You can just you can just love them. We do have a. a but then higher... again, you might be a creator too. That's that's doing the wrong thing. I mean, Bendis started out as a penciler. You know, yeah. I mean, Bendis, and even you know, you go back and you read his uh, the crime books he did through Image, like like Goldfish and Jinx. I mean, you know, he he was really putting a lot of effort into uh, into being an artist and. Uh, you know the uh, the art wasn't so good on those books, but obviously you know the writing was was fantastic. So maybe you know maybe you might be doing doing the wrong thing. Maybe there's another job in comics for you besides uh, being a penciler or being you know be, being a writer. So you're saying I should be a letterer? Got it. <laughs> Lettering's the way to go. <laughs> so. Anyway, as I was going, um, Stephen, what do you think? Is it is it a how does this look for you as a time to break into comics? I mean, even I mean, I, I think this is. This is absolutely the best time to break in the comics, honestly. And it's funny because you still hear, it's so weird kind of watching the industry now. I mean, ever since like the bust in the mid-90s, you know, you've heard comics are over, comics are over. I think what's happening is that comics aren't over, but superhero comics are changing. And all you need to do is just walk into a bookstore and look at the comics that are on the shelves there and look at who's publishing them. We have Random House publishing comics, we have Hyperion publishing comics, all of these major book publishers are kind of getting into this business that we've all 
been in for years. And the reason why is because Marvel and DC and, and small houses like Arkea and, you know, Image and, and Dark Horse, we've all shown that graphic novels are something worth investing in, some, something worth putting time and worth putting money in. And there's a whole group of people that want to break into superhero comics, but there's a, an even bigger group of people that have grown up on manga and that have grown up on, you know, kind of the more mainstream, I mean, I mean Diary of a Wimpy Kid, they've sold a million and a half copies of that right now. And that's, you know, that's technically considered a graphic novel. So I, I think this is absolutely the best time to be breaking in because there's not just comic book publishers that are doing comics. There's book publishers. There's, uh, there's websites doing comics. Everyone is doing comics now. We're in the middle of seeing uh, this revolution that I think we all kind of hoped for, which is that comics would finally break into the mainstream, and they are. The, the, the thing is, though, it, it's not quite superhero comics that are, are necessarily breaking. I mean, obviously, you know, the movies, which are mainstream and everything like that, but it's just the art form that is becoming mainstream. And I think, to me, that's the most exciting thing about what's going on right now. And that's why I'm personally more excited about being a comic book fan and about being a comic book publisher than I than I ever have been in, in my entire, you know, comic reading experience. I feel good. <laughs> um, Ron, what do you think? I, I, I mean, I think we're all in agreement here that yeah. this is the best time. The, the, the Internet has made it so easy to publish your comics. Really, the question is, if you're a comic creator, what's stopping you? Because just, just do it. Just make a comic. That, I mean, that's it. Make a webcomic. You know, put your stuff out there. Um, there's no reason not to. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 funny because it's this point like there's there's the only thing that's holding you back at this point. You know, you have you have limitless, nearly free publish publishing, and you can kind of do the only thing that's holding you back is your own, you know, reticence, I guess. Yeah, and that's mostly what it's about. Does anybody have any any magic bit of advice that they that they have given to lots of people, lots of time? Anything we didn't get to cover? Learn to draw feet. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a comic last week. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> no, right. and I, I think one of the things I just, you know, is important. You know, Ron, Ron, you started collecting your uh, your your tweets about breaking in and making comics in a place. I think, you know, we should maybe just tell all the people we've been talking about Twitter, but we haven't given our addresses on where to find us online and how to get in contact with us because we're the guys who are out in the front lines for the companies kind of, you know, looking for the talent. So they should be able to, to contact us or at least follow us in some way. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, I had a, a lot of people. Uh, I started using a hashtag, make comics, uh, just to, to try and organize that stuff. And then I had people still come to me saying, you know, where's this, you know, where's this link or that link? Because it had been, you know, so long since I posted it. So I did actually go back through my Twitter stream and, and collect everything that I had posted on a blog, um, which is just my name. It's, it's ronparaza.com. Uh, and and on Twitter uh, is just my last name. It's uh, at Peraza, P-E-R-A-Z-Z-A. I'll put up links to all that stuff in the uh, in the show notes. So we'll have all the stuff there and all the links and places you can go. Oh, um, perfect. Cool. Well, thanks very much, guys. It was really fun. And I'm um, glad that I got you all together at the same time. And uh, hopefully it's useful. Finally. <laughs> hey, hey, it took some time, but it was well worth it, I think. That came off great. <laughs> Definitely worth it. Thank you, man. This was awesome. All right, thanks.
Wow, that was a ton of information. I want to thank the guys for helping out and uh, sharing their time and their knowledge. Uh, CB and Ron and Steven are always dropping hints and information to help people who want to break into comics. So make sure you go to ifanboy.com, check the show notes for this, and you'll find links to their Twitter feeds and websites and all that stuff. And uh, good luck to everybody out there making comics. Thanks. And what you give is what you get.